sometimes a song just catches a moment like nothing else. When I was 15, on the 26th of January, a song was released that had these words. January, sick and tired, you've been hanging on me. And somehow that caught how I and I guess other people felt about January at that time. Yeah, after all the manic excitement of December and Christmas and New Year, January felt tired, even a bit depressing. Well, today I want to use a different word. I, I think of January as sobering, not in the usual sense of sobering, um, meaning alcohol coming out of your body, but, but sobering like a walk on a day like today when the air's fresh and there's a blue sky. When for a moment the fog in your brain parts and you can see clearly yeah, a good moment to make decisions about the course that you want to follow. As has already been said, traditionally people use New Year's resolutions as a tool to help with that. Well, it's a tradition in this church that every January our pastor Tony tells us, as he did last week, that he's not keen on such resolutions. Last week, he also told us the reason why. He has a history of breaking them within a day. Well, my wife, Mareka, can do much better than that. My recollection is that she once broke a resolution seven minutes past midday, midnight on the 1st of January. And she actually remembers it as being 30 seconds. <laughs> now, before you have time to judge either of them harshly for that, I want to read from Mark 12, verses 28 to 30. I want to propose this as not a new year resolution, but a new day resolution. Something we should each take up every day that we wake on the earth. Jesus said this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, I don't know about Tony, I'm asked him, but Mreka set the bar high when she made her resolution, and that's why she failed so quickly. And the greatest commandment is such a high bar that I, I'm sorry if this sounds negative, but I am confident that before I finish this talk, certainly before we leave this building today, every person in this room would have broken it in one way or another. So here we are as believers in this gospel, meeting together, and I'm claiming that we'll all break the most important commandment of our faith before I've finished. Either I'm mad, or that is very, very sobering, or more likely both.
Now, I won't justify my claim except to say this. Without what I've claimed, I cannot explain either the horror or the glory of the cross. Now, what I do want to do is to look at some of what obedience to this commandment might mean for us. All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, first century Jews wouldn't understand heart, soul and mind as we do. We have a clear separation between our thoughts, which we think of as being in our mind, and our emotions or feelings which are in our heart. I've got no idea why we think our heart is the seat of emotion. If anywhere, we feel emotion in our stomach. Um, being me, I, I quite like the idea of replacing all those pretty heart emojis with pictures of intestines. <laughs> but those listening to Jesus wouldn't have separated thinking and feeling and associated them with different parts of the body. They mixed all the parts together, including sometimes the kidneys. And they didn't have the same sense of a separate thinking me, an emotional me. Now for that particular verse, I don't think it causes any confusion. It's clearly saying that we should love God with absolutely everything that we have. Thoughts, emotions, body, everything. However, I'm about to read Romans 12, verse 2, and this verse uses the word mind. And in this context, I think it's helpful to think of that as meaning our thoughts and our emotions. So Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You know, if we're to love God with all that we are, then we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the renewing of our thoughts, by the renewing of our emotions, by the renewing of everything that we are. Now, I want what I'm going to say today to be rooted in the practical. So I'm going to consider three areas in which each of us may need our minds transforming. Uh, transforming. Those areas are pride, lust, and anxiety. Now, that's quite a trinity. It's possible, even likely, that everyone in this room today has struggled with at least one of those. And it may well be that there are people here that are struggling at this time with all three. Now, I'm owning up to two of them, pride and lust. They're a bit like a politician that um, confesses something they did 10 years ago. I'm saying that I've moved on a long way over the years. Let's have a look at these beauties. Pride first. I, I don't see pride as the same as arrogance. 
And that means that pride is something you can struggle with and nobody in the world except you knows that. Um, I was blessed to be very successful at school in two major areas, in my studies and in sport. Actually, it was only one sport I was good at, and that was middle distance running. Not short distances, not very long distances, just a bit in between. And I wasn't even that good, but for a while, I could outrun everyone in my school, which meant that when I was around a typical group of people, I knew I could run faster than them. And that was enough. It gave my mind enough to feel at times better than others. Not in a big way, not in a horrible way, not in an arrogant way, but it was there. Now maybe you think that's fine. Maybe you think actually it's arrogance and not pride that is the problem. Well, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 1, verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Your arrogance is a visible thing. Proud in their inmost thoughts isn't. What does this verse say he does to such people? He scatters them. I don't think that means scattering a bit of flour on a cake or scattering seeds as in the parable of the sower. The verse starts by saying he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And that makes me think of the scattering of a mighty army that in the morning turns out with all its finery and marches to battle. But in the evening is found running in every direction, fleeing destruction. While I was battling with pride, I came across a, a particular phrase that, that really pulled me up. It's found in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, and it simply says this, God opposes the proud. Now, to make sure that I and I guess others got the message, as well as inspiring Peter to write that, God inspired James to write the exact same phrase. It's found in James 4, verse 6. I am proud. God opposes the proud, therefore God opposes me. How could such a thing be true of a believer? Pride strikes at the very heart of our relationship with God. You know, there's reason to believe that it caused the fall of Lucifer and of a third of the angels. We're in terrible, terrible company when pride rises in our heart. As with lust, as with anxiety, there are two sides to this. You know, we are to be humbled not humiliated. In, in modern language, as believers, we have very good reason to expect and to look for excellent self-esteem. 
The problem is that there is a place where self-esteem and pride overlap. And it can be difficult at times to see exactly where that boundary is. That said, there were times in my life where I knew very well where the boundary was and that I was on the wrong side of it. And I've moved on a very long way since then. I have to say it was a maddeningly slow process with a few key moments. It perhaps links into what Tony said earlier about patience. And it, it's really important I say now that each of us are different and that God deals with us in different ways. So please don't think that because something worked one way for me, it will work the same way for you, or that because God treated me in one way, he will treat you in the same way. You know, what I most want you to hear today is that these things can be changed. So this is my story. My pride had to be smashed. I'm about to say may not fit with your theology, but as I, was see, as I see it, God had to take me round the back and give me a good beating to knock my pride out of me. And I'll just give you one very, very mild example. Um, when I was around 22, a, a good friend who didn't know that I could run suggested that we go for a run together. And he was way slower than me. And as we ran along, he was getting more and more exhausted. And I felt like I was doing a really light warm-up. And then, I don't know why, but about 400 metres from home, I said to him, let's race back. Now, when he eventually got back, he told me that he was so discouraged to see me sprinting off that he just gave up and walked. And that's when it hit me. My pride, which I didn't care much for, was an obstacle to my friendship, which mattered a lot to me. Yeah, and I learned that day, it's often not our strengths that draw people to us. It's often our weaknesses. Now, I said that pride sits at the heart of our broken relationship with God. There's a, a song that you may know that has in it a line from Romans 14, verse 11, which says this, every knee will bow before me. Every knee will bow. You may sing that thinking, what a glorious thing. And you're probably right. But I also think it could be one of the most horrible moments in human history. I'm sorry if that spoils that song for you. So God in his grace has worked to transform my mind. I want to move on to, to something where the transformation is clearly not just of our thoughts. It's very much about our emotions and our bodies. Reading from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, Jesus said this. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, I don't take that literally, which is why I still have both my eyes, but I do take it very, very seriously. Again, I can say that God has worked in me, and again, I can say it was a maddeningly slow process with a few key moments. And that was a battle that raged in me from my mid-teens through to my mid to late 20s. And it's spluttered on ever since. And for most of that time, I felt completely on my own. I felt as though I'd been put on a battlefield wearing shorts and a t-shirt with bare feet, nothing in my hands. And then over the top of the hill rumbled the enemy driving tanks. You know, reality and what we feel can be very different at times. It may have felt hopeless for me, but the reality is that by God's grace, I came through relatively unscathed. You know, however we feel, it isn't hopeless. Our minds can be transformed. I want to tell you of one thing that happened that moved me a little in the right direction. One day I found a scrap of paper with some writing on it in the place where I was living. And I'd read it before I really realised what it was. I think it was a prayer. It was written by someone who'd lived there before I did. She was a friend who had been involved in the pornography industry before she became a Christian. Something in the words on that scrap of paper brought home to me as a young man the damage done to that young woman's life. You know, seeing the consequence of lust in the life of someone I cared about was enormously helpful to me. How do we help each other? My issue was that I was isolated, which perhaps was a reflection on me as much as on the churches that I was in at the time. I had an understanding of God's word and I had a desire to do the right thing before him. But to be honest, that wasn't enough. And some of the biggest breakthroughs came when other people were involved. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 12 says this. Though one may be overpowered, sorry, make that a bit clearer. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I don't think I was exceptional. I'm not talking about the extremes of pride or lust. I'm talking about feelings that you could describe as normal in a young man. 
Now, if you think I'm exaggerating the importance of these things, I'll go back to where I started. I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. You know, normal or not, those things are huge obstacles to loving God in that way. So what about anxiety? There's a, a clear difference in tone between how the Bible speaks of pride and lust and how it speaks about anxiety. You can maybe feel that in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's a gentleness in those words. No opposing the proud or tearing out your eye. But that doesn't mean we can casually walk past what the Bible has to say about anxiety. Philippians 4 verse 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That verse, it says, do not be anxious. Elsewhere, Jesus said, do not worry. Do not, do not is a command. You know, Jesus isn't saying, it would be nice if you didn't. He is commanding us not to worry. Yet the language is different. You know, it's not a much, so much about smashing something because it's destructive. It, it's more like taking a child by the hand and leading them away from something that is harmful. You, you may not care that the language is different. If you struggle with anxiety, you may, may feel much as I did when I struggled so much with lust and pride. I felt powerless as I failed again and again. It felt like there was no way out. When I looked at the Bible, when I looked at the church, I understood that I needed to change. But I didn't see anything that told me how to change. How, how do we free ourselves from anxiety? Is it a curse that passes through generations that we should pray that God frees us from? Is it because we grew up in a family where we were never good enough and so we do we need loving out of it? Is it something that needs special knowledge and so should I be going to experts? Is it a physical thing that can be fixed with medication? And there are many more questions like that. And I don't think the Bible gives us answers to those sorts of questions. And you may find that utterly frustrating. I actually think it's a good thing. And that's because God doesn't want us to be robots with instruction books that tell us what to do. Rather, he's made us as beings in his, in his own image. And so he tells us what he wants, and he leaves us together to figure out how to do that. 
You know, in the moment, it can seem impossible. But there is a sense that God believes in us far, far more than we believe in ourselves sometimes. So let's not be sick and tired of January or of any time when we look soberly at what we're doing. Let's always be ready to renew our minds. There are a number of people in this church that have allotments. And often when you first get an allotment, it's a complete mess. And it takes a lot of hard work to clear the weeds. And some of the weeds are so deep-rooted that even though you think they've gone, they reappear the next year. Struggling with some of the things I've talked about can feel like clearing deep-rooted weeds. You pull them out and it's clear, but a while later, they're all growing again. But you know, clearing the weeds is just the start. When all the weeds have gone, what, what have you got? Have you got a piece of, of land that's bare, that's barren, nothing growing on it? You know, barren land is lifeless. There's a part of me that, that would prefer to see the chaos of weeds growing everywhere. You, know, you need to plant seeds and tend the land and bring it to glorious fruitful life. Reading from Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's no good just ripping the bad stuff from our minds. We need to put the good stuff in there too. There's, there's not time to properly expand on that verse, but I want to let you into another of the corners of my mind. And that is, I have a bit of a funny relationship with this verse. My, my problem with it is I feel people have associated it with things that to me are twee. You know, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Sounds like you want us to all go flower arranging. Now, if you like flower arranging, and it would be just my luck if that's what half of you have been doing at Common Space this week, <laughs> forgive me. But my issue is that we can narrow a verse like this to, to what to me are very middle of the road activities, safe activities. And I'm a person often feels more comfortable on the edge. I spoke earlier, standing apparently defenseless against a tank. One of the iconic images of my life is of someone doing exactly that. So on 5th of June, 1989, in Tiananmen Square. Now, there are very different views of the politics of that moment. And so I'm not going to comment on the rights or wrongs of what happened. However, I do think that moments like that are candidates for 
whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. And the wonderful thing about this verse is it actually covers such a huge range of human activity. The prayer meeting Friday night, we watched the video of the blessing that was produced at the beginning of the pandemic. What a reminder that at its best, the church can be wonderfully creative and can produce things that both people in the middle and on the edge can appreciate. You know, such creativity is absolutely part of bringing our allotments to life. So in January and all the months of the year, let's be sober-minded as we tear out the deep-rooted weeds. But let's make sure that we replace them with all the glorious wonder of the life God has given us. Those two actions together will take each of us closer to living out the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength.